number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is... Welcome to the Stuart Knight Show, where interesting, intriguing, and exciting people engage in unscripted exchanges of ideas, stories, and perspectives. It's not an interview. It's a powerful conversation. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Stuart Knight Show, where on the show, as usual, we are trying to get you to consider some of your old ways of thinking, maybe boycott some of your old thoughts, and ultimately to embrace new ideas that will help you really define your relationship with yourself, with your career, with your friends, your family, with your level of adventure. Whatever it happens to be, this whole show is about getting you thinking about life and hopefully leading you to a, be- a better life. And to help me do that today, I'm really lucky that I've got uh, someone who has traveled the world as an entertainer, someone who is in high demand and she's made time for us. Um, just to give you a bit of background on her, her name is, of course, the one and only Jessica Holmes. Um, many of you will know her as uh, a favorite on Royal Canadian Air Farce for 15 years, which is a huge show in Canada. And uh, for those of you who are not Canadians, download it, Google it, find it. You got to watch it. Um, as a comedian, she's open for such giants as Ellen DeGeneres, Russell Peters, Jerry Seinfeld, Oprah Winfrey. I mean, those are some okay names, I would say. <laughs> uh, and she's just got a really hilarious take on life and the way that she does things and she's one to get up there and talk about anything from mental health challenges to depression to uh, points where on stage she's uh, skewering celebrities from Nicki Minaj to Celine Dion. She's an author, she's a television personality, she's an actor, she's a comedian, she's a professional speaker, she's won all kinds of awards and been nominated for even more. Uh, I would say that uh, she's one hell of a gal. And she's on our show today. Welcome, Jessica Holmes. <laughs> Thank you. That intro makes me feel like I should probably pick a lane. But the thing is, in Canada, you have to have like six careers in the arts to have one job. So that's true. You're also <laughs> aren't you're also a janitor as well, aren't you? Yeah, I do that. I'm a lawyer. Sure, <laughs> just throw it on. You might you might as well because it's true though, isn't it? Interesting how in Canada. Um, it's so different compared to the United States in the sense where you could be popular for about seven seconds in the United States and have so much money in the bank for the rest of your life, Mm -hmm. you'd never have to work again. Whereas in Canada, you know, you and I both know that uh, that paycheck's not always there. Yeah. So you're you're sort of paying your dues for your entire career, (laughs) even though you'll feel like, hey, but I made it. Why do I have to keep making it? (laughs) Speaking of that, though, out of curiosity, has there ever been a time where you felt like, okay, even though I'm still in that world where I need to hustle and I always need to make sure that I'm out there and I'm relevant and I'm, and I'm doing my thing. But was there a time in your career where you're like, okay, I've, I've, I have quote unquote made it. Um, I, I remember when I was on air farce, I actually, uh, decided to quit the show because I felt like, Oh, you know what? I've, I've been on this national network for six years now. I've, played every character I've ever wanted to play. I'm going to go see what else is out there. And uh, I quit the show and there wasn't a whole lot else out there. (laughs) So I was like, oh, I guess, okay, this is not the American star system. And um, (laughs) I still, I still focused on like passion projects and, and got some writing done that I really loved. But uh, I remembered the lesson being, you know, the grass is always greener, maybe on the other side of the fence. And that before I leave a job now, I actually ask myself, like, could, could I be happy here though? Like, instead of just saying like, oh, I might be happier somewhere else, which is 
you know, I guess only the luxury that a, a very successful person was, would have. And now I understand Canada isn't really like that with our star system. So I, I would think twice before I leave a full-time TV job <laughs> again. Right. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, what's it been like for you over the years in those moments where you have to take a gig that you just aren't really either passionate about or on some level just kind of makes you feel like, ugh, you know, because I, because I know this, right? I, in my own career, where there have been times, I'm, I'm happy to say now, more often than not, I, I would not have to do that. But you know, those moments when we're trying to make it, and you're like, ugh, I, I got to do a commercial for, I don't know, some car company, and I, and I don't even drive a car or whatever it was, it just didn't feel right yeah. for you. Like, what was that like? Um, so I can think of an exact moment when that happened. Oh, yeah? I always start accepting terrible gigs, uh, toward the end of the summer, because as you know, the speaking circuit dries up during the summer. Right. And so if you haven't worked in two months, you start saying, Oh, I'm so hungry to work. I don't even care what the job is. Like I'm, I'm just excited to get on a stage again. Right. And, uh, I called my agent and said, um, you know, I know that I don't usually do birthday parties, but, um, <laughs> if someone has the budget, um, I'll totally do a birthday party. Anyway, the time for the birthday party rolled around. And by then, of course it was like November and I was busy and engaged and doing a, a lot of meaningful speaking gigs to myself. Uh, but I still had to show up in my green room with some person's garage and, uh, there was no sound system. So I was just like yelling at party guests who totally, I think were embarrassed for me because they weren't told a performer would be doing a show. <laughs> so I kind of just looked like an obnoxious guest. There was no stage or sound system. It was just me like yelling in the corner of the living room. Oh, so it was just awful. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I gotta say so, this is, I'm laughing so hard over here, but it, I must admit, this is probably one of my favorite things to do when I'm uh, hanging out with my fellow performers and to ask that question, like what's one of the worst gigs you've ever done? And oh, yeah. everybody has the funniest story for that because everyone's been through it. Oh, absolutely. And it, it does make me feel better. And that was part of why I got so used to doing corporate work and which is always a solo job. It's, you don't really have peers in the business unless you happen to be doing a conference where there's a bunch of other speakers, but I was getting really lonely for like, just <laughs> to hear other people's stories from the road. Right. And, uh, I asked my agent to start putting me out to more comedy festivals so that at least a couple times a year, I can be like, backstage sitting in a green room with other comedians and sort of commiserate about, about life on the road. And it's great. And I did, I interviewed people about what are your worst stories? What are your most embarrassing things? And people shared, you know, anything from dinner theater where they had to um, eat dinner with the guests. And one guest was making fat jokes at her expense or someone who got <laughs> fired mid show, like someone just walked their, their boss, just walked on stage, unplugged the mic in the middle of the show and said, get out. And the audience <laughs> cheered. It was terrible. No so, way. um, hearing those stories kind of reminds me, okay, we're, we're all in this together. We've all had these experiences, but, um, I, I decided from now on during the summer, instead of getting squirrely, if I haven't been hired, I just, I try and get a hobby. <laughs> I'm like, get <laughs> yeah. a hobby. Don't yeah. resort to birthday parties. That's right. You, you have your own self-esteem is on the line here. You know, mm -hmm. I, I had a friend, Sean recently tell me, um, about, uh, a, a show he's in, a theater show. And I said, how's that show going? And he said, oh, it's really great. Actually, uh, the show last night I did was was awesome. Um, we had uh, four people in the crowd. And uh, two of them were an old couple uh, who sat at the front and fell asleep. And the other two were a young couple who sat at the back and just made out the entire show. <laughs> 
I was like, that's odd. They're just, this was cheaper than a hotel room, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. 10 bucks. Just go in this we can No one will even know. But uh, yeah, uh-huh. and people, they have no idea. Now, now that leads me to another question though, that I just thought of, you know, um, as a comedian, I, I, I would say that uh, and now I've never done stand-up comedy. I've done a lot of comedy either in my speeches or in, in my musicals, but the, to just go out there and the audience is there for one reason and one reason only, and that is to see you as a comedian. That, that is something mm-hmm. I have not done. It's something that scares me and something I plan on doing because I know, I almost feel like I can't even call myself a legitimate performer until I've done it. Now, leading, and, I, and the reason I'm, I'm going somewhere with this, you've obviously done that. And um, for you, when you're going into the corporate arena, it's a it's a much more um, forgiving space. Uh, yes. it, you know, they're they're nicer audiences. Let's just face it, and they're more polite. So, is there any part of you though that because you do a lot of the corporate speaking, do you miss kind of that edge where you get on stage and I don't know, there's a higher likelihood that <laughs> you could receive negative feedback. Uh, I never miss that edge only because, uh, I, I experience it the odd time. Like I said, when I, when I go do these comedy festivals lately, it's a reminder that, um, that I'm not a true roadie stand-up comedian. Like I haven't, um, toured the tiniest bars in Canada, which a lot of my peers have, they've been across Canada. They've performed for four people in the audience. They, um, they've really, really honed their craft that way. Whereas I'm more, um, my stuff is funny. I, I suppose I'm a comedian, like I'll, I'll call myself a comedian, but I wouldn't, I don't enjoy putting myself up against a tried tested and true stand-up comedian because they just have more punchlines than me and so when I do perform with other comedians I have to ask the producers to put me on first because I explain like my stuff is more theatrical I sing I do characters I I do tell jokes I definitely tell jokes but um it's it's going to like quiet things down a little bit Mm. if you have someone who's like rapid fire Chris Rock punchlines. Um, and then you have me like telling anecdotes about my mom. (laughs) So it's kind of, it's just a different, um, a different speed. And I wouldn't say that I've necessarily paid my dues, you know, through years of, uh, performing for open mic nights in comedy clubs like they have. So I love the corporate world. I feel like it's it's just more me. It's more my personality. Um, and I love theater. I, I would not say that stand up comedy clubs are my comfort zone. There's something I push myself to do. And it's a good reminder to be like, Hey, try harder. Cause there's people that are funnier out there. <laughs> so definitely. I love the fact that it kind of reignites my fire and makes me feel like, Oh, I got to get back in the game. But, um, no, I, I love, uh, I've just gotten really used to the corporate audiences and, and I feel like we understand each other and, and I'm a good pace for them. Do you feel that your corporate audiences, um, for the most part, give themselves permission to laugh? Yeah, I, I always do an interview with the client beforehand and I find out just how, you know, how used to having a performer, is this crowd. So for example, normally I start a show, if it's an audience that's kind of seen it all and done it all, I'll start a show wearing like a spiky black wig and a boa and I'm Liza Minnelli and I'm singing like a big show tune. Um, and then I'll kind of 
pull off the wig and and get into stand up and then I'll I'll transition it into the more motivational realm. Mm. And I go back and forth a bit during the hour that I'm with them. But for example, I have a job coming up in April and someone was like, we've never had a speaker sing, let alone sing in a wig. Like we just, he's like, they'll turn on you right away if you open like that. So I was like, oh, I'm going to sneak it through the back door then. So okay. my plan is to just come on stage like I was just a regular person okay, and uh, butter them up with some normal. And then, <laughs> and then about 10 minutes in say, look, you guys ready to have some fun? And then kind of like cue the music and, uh, and go wild that way. But yeah, absolutely. I, I would say one of my favorite things about, um, public speaking is customizing it to a certain audience and to feel like, okay, I did my homework. Like I really am here to do the very best I can do for this specific group of people. Right. I, I enjoy that sort of that challenge of it so that every, every show isn't the same either. I mean, that would definitely not be engaging to just like insert town name here. Right. Um, so I, customization is, one of the most fulfilling parts of the job for me. And, and you know, it, it, it does take extra work, as we both know, but it really does um, make them feel so good. Huh? It's like just, I mean, God, like referencing a, a, a particular challenge that the company just went through or um, talking about some of their competitors or something that one of their competitors is doing, like they just feel like, okay, this person is not just here getting a paycheck, but they actually have thought about who we are and, and how their work relates to our own. Yeah. And especially the message that the, one of the main messages that I share is that, um, stress plus time equals comedy. Like the things that really irk us today are things we can learn to laugh about tomorrow. And, uh, one of the examples was I was working for a school board where everyone, every member of the staff from the custodians to the secretaries, to the vice principals, they always had to take turn doing bus duty. And, uh, at part of that was they had to wear those terrible orange construction vests. And they <laughs> said like, this wasn't on my bucket list. This wasn't like, um, and so, uh, I, I, when I was performing for them, I started just referencing that horrible vest and it got such a great laugh mm. and I'm going back to perform for them again, uh, in about a month. And I decided I'm going to go on stage in the orange vest and oh, do that yeah. just oh, for the yeah. fun of it. But to know that now, every time they put on the orange vest, you know, at least they'll know we're laughing about it, right? Like yeah. it's fodder for comedy. It's not, you're not in this alone. Like you don't have to be embarrassed by yourself because, because we're all in it with you type of thing. That's a great way of looking at it. Um, when, when you think about the ways that you've had to transition um, as someone who does comedy, whether it's a, a corporate speaking environment, whether it's a stand-up comedy club, uh, or whether it's you know, on a podcast, you know, there's all kinds of mediums by which we're uh, talking and sharing our stories and trying to be funny. How was it for you to go from being kind of this larger than life character on stage and trying to do the same thing as a, as an author, as you bring comedy into, whoops, a Daisy didn't turn my phone off <laughs> <laughs> as you, uh, as you go into, um, in, in, into the, the authorship world. Is that, was that, is it, cause I, I know you know how to be funny on stage, but is it hard to be mm. funny as a writer in, in such a large, uh, written kind of format? It was, it was a, a bit daunting going into it, but I approached writing the, the two books I've written. I approached writing it the same way I approach, uh, getting on stage. So I would actually be sitting in the computer chair improvising for two hours every morning, just improvising a conversation between me and a fictional character in the book or hmm. improvising 
a scene in my mind between um, me and the lady at the dog park who like can't just respect the fact that I'm an introvert and <laughs> I don't <laughs> right. want to talk, yeah. that kind of thing. So I, I probably... My, according to my husband, like I, I talk out loud to myself a lot of the time when I'm writing. Mm. And, um, it, it was just a really organic experience. It was, it, it's a fun thing for me. And I will say I found I had the best work-life balance of my life when I was writing those books, because I would wake up in the morning and know what was ahead of me. I knew my purpose, I knew my schedule and that felt really good. And that's, you know, when you're used to being a performer, your purpose sometimes feels like it only begins when the phone rings and you book a job. Mm -hmm. So this to me was six months of knowing, okay, relief. Like <laughs> I, there's no anxiety whatsoever because it's just me and my imagination for the next six months. So I personally loved it. And if I get inspired again, I'd love to write another book. So there's so many people out there who say they want to write a book, and <laughs> I know you've heard it. I hear it all the time, and they think it's the most um, daunting task. They've they they they, they, conv they they've convinced themselves that the amount of effort would just be something that they wouldn't have the time for. And I I do think it is a big job, no question. I don't want to downplay mm -hmm. that. But what would you say were one, maybe even two things that you just did um, that helped you? complete a book and to make what some would seem as an instrumental task into something that was quite doable? For sure. I waited until I found a subject that I was really, really passionate about. Because if someone's not really excited about writing on a certain subject and putting that information out there, then maybe you haven't really found the exact spin you want to put on this subject yet, or maybe you're, it's not the right subject at all. So I had to wait this book, it was a lot of different things for about four years. Like at first it was a self-help book and then it was a book about mental health and then it was, um, a memoir. And then, and you know, like I kept, I'd pitch it around to different, to writing agents and then they'd bring me to some publishers and, uh, and it was really, really discouraging. And I, I just felt like, well, then I, I just won't do a book at all. But I had this nagging feeling that I had to write about mental health in a funny way. And so I, you know, I, I reached out to publishers and, and said, well, here's this new pitch. And it's, it's called depression, the comedy, and nobody wanted it. They just felt like it's too silly. You know, you have to go deeper, you have to be a better writer, you have to. And I was like, yeah, but my inner muse really thinks this is the right way to go. And, uh, that voice in my head was stronger than anyone else's discouragement. And I decided to just write it anyway, even if nobody wanted it, even if it never found an audience, I felt like I, I truly, there was nothing else in the world I wanted to do as much as I wanted to write this book. So that's what drove me was feeling like there's, there's a reason for this message. I don't know what it is, but I, I feel like someone out there maybe needs to hear this. And, um, and so now I feel really satisfied. Like I get letters the odd time from people who have read the book and it's, it's helped them. It's helped them get through a tough time. It by no means cures depression, <laughs> but, sure. um, it just lets people know that they're not alone and, and that, you know, here's a gentle, safe way that won't trigger further anxiety, but where you can just hear about one person's experience and, and kind of have a laugh and, um, and, not take it and so, so I was really, 
Well, I was, yeah. And I was glad it was a good lesson because I did listen to my gut and the book is not, a it's not on the New York's time, New York times bestseller. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, uh, it's meaningful to me and it's meaningful to the people who read it. So I love that you said uh, that just now when you talked about how, um, it's, it's not a New York Times bestseller because I've written a couple of books and, and mine certainly are not New York Times bestsellers. And I tell people this all the time. I say, look, if you're going to write a book as a business model, uh, you should not write a book because such a small amount of books actually ever make anybody particularly rich. Uh, you know, if you write Harry Potter, you're probably going to make a little bit of cash on the side. Uh, write Game of Thrones, yeah, you'll do well for yourself. But um, mm-hmm. for the most part, books are, I think, just such a wonderful way to get our thoughts out there and to share. Um, yes. And it, sometimes it could be sharing uh, a personal story. Sometimes it's just sharing um, your uh, love of fantasy and you're taking somebody into a, a magical world. Whatever that thing happens to be for you that you want to share with others, a book is the really one of the best places to do it. And uh, I love that you just did it your way without worry mm-hmm. about whether or not anyone was even going to read it. And, and I think that's probably what allowed you to, I mean, I guess be as, as true to your material as, as you were. Yeah. And I, I guess as a, as a creative person, like what I learned at second city and what I learned uh, in my early days of comedy was um, the value system for comedians. Isn't um, are you successful? It isn't, are you rich and on TV? It's, are you expressing your creative vision? Mm-hmm. And that's what impresses comedians. If you have a creative voice and you stick with it. And so I, I mean, against, <laughs> against sort of society standards of what a successful book looks like. Um, I just knew that for me to feel great working on this, I I wanted to do something that was my voice because there's, there are so many books out there. The world doesn't need more books if you're just repeating someone else's subject in a new way or if you're um, – the world needs your voice. That's what the world needs Yes. to know your authentic experience and your honesty about it. And that's what will engage people. And it might engage a million or it might engage five. But um, if you feel drawn to it, uh, it'll feel like the happiest work of your life. And it, it might be difficult and it might require discipline, but um, it was so deeply fulfilling for me to put it down on paper. So I felt like I was doing the right thing um, that, at the time. You know, and I, I love what you said about whether it's seen by a million or whether it's seen by five. That is something that a lot of people forget when they, they assume that they have to be so creative uh, in order to write a book. And it really comes down to what you said, which is to just recognize that you do have a voice and there is an audience out there. And that audience might be your five family members. Um, mm-hmm. They might be the people who live on your street. But you can write a book and you can print a book now online without having to even go to a publisher. And you can get that book um, into the hands of other people. And someone will be uh, influenced in some positive way uh, because of it. And that's really all that matters. Now, one of the things, I mean, you're talking about the book and, and as you said, the title is uh, Depression, the Comedy, which I, I love. Um, but then the tagline is uh, A Tale of Perseverance. What do you mean by that part? What I meant by the perseverance part is um, that getting diagnosed with, with depression was about half the battle because I'd been depressed for about two years, but just not, I didn't know it. I thought, 
oh, this is just part of being a performer. We're really grumpy. And, Mm -hmm. oh, this is just motherhood. I'm cranky all the time because I didn't sleep or um, my husband's shoes clutter up the front door. No wonder I'm like (laughs) constantly on the sofa crying. Um, (laughs) I just was finding a lot of different reasons for it. Um, And then finally, when I got the diagnosis, uh, it took me about six months to recover. And it was really hard work because it was just me battling myself. It was me battling discouragement. And anyone who um, has been depressed, you know, you face a lot of people saying, well, why don't you just exercise? They say exercise helps. Or Mm -hmm. why don't you read this self-help book? They say that helps. And we're not dumb people. We know that those things would, will help, but it's almost like a depressed mind is like a sieve and only the negatives make it through. So we have to work 50 times harder to get encouraged enough to even get off the sofa. And, uh, it, it's a true illness. It's not a case of like, Oh, my perspective just wasn't grateful enough. It honestly felt like I had concrete poured over me. And, uh, my journey to getting out of it was, uh, I tried the things I was supposed to do. There's, you know, there's like maybe about 10 things that they've proven do make a difference in, in coming out of depression. And I would try those things and they'd fail and I'd try them and fail and I'd try them in different ways. And, uh, it didn't work and it didn't work and it didn't work. And then one day it just started to work. So what changed? Uh, it was just, it was just continuing to make the effort. Right. It's, it's sort of like I, I share a story on stage about how, um, when I was a kid, my dad took me out in this old motorboat where you pull the cord and sometimes the motor catches and sometimes it doesn't. And this one day I was terrified. I was like, they're going to find our bones in this boat in six <laughs> months. We're going to die out here. Mm-hmm. Cause he just kept pulling and nothing happened. And then he pulled it one more time and, and it hummed to life and we went home. And, and I feel like that was what the recovery was like for me was, there, there wasn't a ton of rhyme or reason to why did it work today when it didn't work then. But, um, I just feel like perseverance is something people with mental health issues have to get used to. Um, we have to persevere and it's, it's the hardest emotional work I've done in my life. And I'm so proud of myself that I kept at it. And I'm really proud of everyone out there who is currently trying or who has tried in the past. And, and so I feel like celebrate your little victories, like celebrate even your tiniest effort. If you walked around the block today, give yourself a pat on the back, because if you're someone who's had mental health issues, you know, that that's, that's kind of an amazing feat. Yeah. And you really can't, um, allow yourself. I mean, as easy as it is to say this, you can't allow yourself to, um, be, uh, imprisoned by, everyone else's definition of what should or should not happen or the way you should or should not respond to something. I remember, because I've gone through um, uh, bouts of depression in my life, and I'll never forget <clears throat> my girlfriend I had. She was living in New York City, and and um, I had been depressed for quite a long time. It was the, the, probably the, the darkest period I'd ever been in uh, with respect to depression. And she got on a plane on a Thursday night and then surprised me and walked into my bedroom while I was still in bed uh, on Friday morning. And of course, as you and I know, you don't want to get out of bed uh, like, yeah. like for the rest of the day. And she was convinced that that would just be good enough. She would just come in. She would surprise me. Oh, uh, yeah. And, you know, she would take me. And remember, she, she took me to a movie. We went and saw, I'll never forget, it's the movie Eight Mile 
with Eminem. Yes. And yeah. I was in the audience and the screen started shaking uh, in my visual, uh, in, in, within, within, from what I, no one else in the audience saw this, but for me, the, vis- the screen is actually shaking. And I was having mm-hmm. some sort of physical reaction to the depression I was going through. And uh, we, we left and we walked home. And at one point, she just turned to me and started yelling at me. And she was like, oh. just, what is wrong with you? You just have to get out of this. And um, in the moment, I remember just feeling so bad that I didn't even have the energy to really argue back. <laughs> well, and also you're like, you're right. I do. I just can't. Yeah. Trust me. So. Yeah. Yeah. You, 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 yeah believe <laughs> you're it or correct, not. But still <laughs> here we are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Believe it or not. I would rather not be this way. And, um, <laughs> and you hit the nail on the head though. You, you, you think in those moments, you'll never get out of it. And I remember being in my mind thinking, Oh shit. Like I could actually, what if I was like this forever? And, and then you keep getting a little bit better. And then there's that one day where you, you, you find yourself, you're out with friends and you're having a beer, let's say, and you're laughing and you're like, Oh my God, I couldn't even imagine myself like this six months ago. Um, and then, but so, but, but then the one big mistake people make is that they think that it, you've cured it. Right. And it's not, you'll, you'll dip back and forth and, and it's, yeah, it's sort of, um, I feel like it's, a spectrum. It's yeah. There's not like cured or depressed. There's degrees of cured and degrees of depressed. And and how do, and how do you know it's coming on for you? What do you what what kind of signs are there for you? Um, if I have more than a day or two of feeling sort of down about something, mm-hmm. and uh, then I start to say, oh, you know what? I've really got to up the things in my life that bring me joy and bring me gratitude. And so I, I make sure that I, I do those things, but I tell people for the rest of my life, I'll be doing those things. Like if you've been through more than one depression, even when you're out of the depression, you're just considered in remission. You're Mm -hmm. not considered, you know, Hey, poof, you'll never be depressed again. So, um, my whole life will be spent. I got to exercise every day. I, I've got to make sure I hang out with people who lift me up, not drag me down. Mm -hmm. Um, I have, I watch TV that's up, uplifting and, um, engage in reading new books and stuff. Um, so I do those things when, when I feel it sort of teetering, but, um, just to go back for a second to what you were saying about other people not understanding, I think for me, what my friends found really hard was that on paper, my life looked even better than theirs. Mm-hmm. So they would feel like, well, you know, you don't, you have childcare looked after because you have a nanny, you have a job that is in the public eye. That's really glamorous. You have this really supportive husband and, and a nice home. Like how, how can you possibly be sadder than me? Like as, as so I, I, and I understand it would be very frustrating to people who have visible problems. Um, Mm -hmm. they, for them, they were saying like, look, buddy on paper, you've got it all. So, why you're at home whining is beyond me and not really something I can channel a lot of sympathy for right? because it looks made up. And, uh, so the empathy I have now for people with invisible illnesses, cause you're not just battling the illness, you're battling the stigma yeah. that, that goes with it. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I do what I can now, but I have to say my life is really engaging now. And I would consider myself a really proactive person at this point. Um, because when I do have a down day, 
um, I'm not passive about it anymore. I'm like, okay, well, what podcast is going to lift me up or what, um, okay, which jogging route am I going to take today? That's going to make me feel good. And so my life just looks very different than it did five years ago. And, And it sounds like, um, as a way of kind of staving off depression, you design your life in a way where you say things like, you know, I do make sure that I work out uh, as much as I possibly can every day. And I, you know, spend time with the people that I, that lift me up. So you're in a sense, you've designed a life for yourself that allows you to, I guess, um, become depressed less often than not. And, and to me, I think that um, this is probably one of the reasons why we're seeing more rates of depression um, in our society, because more and more people are not designing their, their lives. They're just waking up and they're just going to that job and then they are consumed with social media all day and then they're running home and they're putting food on the table and they're maybe, I don't know, um, trying to keep up with the Joneses. So they're going out and they're shopping online and buying stuff they don't need. Like they're just not thinking about, hey, what makes me happy? And just doing yeah, that. Yeah, and, and I understand when people say there just isn't the time and I would totally agree. There, there really isn't it's tough to find extra hours in the day. So for example, um, yesterday, my daughter needed something from value village for her costume. Um, I hadn't jogged yet and I was getting a little squirrely. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, I didn't want to go jogging without her. Um, I, I was trying to get as much family time as I could. So I was like, you know what? Value village is 3.3 kilometers away you and I are going to jog there with the dog. And uh, that's my condition for taking you shopping. And so we did, we jogged the 3.3 kilometers and then my husband came and picked us up. But things like if I, if I have to be in the car for an hour, if I have to be on the subway for a half an hour, instead of using that time, uh, in one way, I, I try and use it in the most positive way possible. I'll listen to an audiobook or, Mm. um, even just staying off social media. People don't realize um, how addictive it is in a really negative way. It yeah. uh, hurts us on a deep level that we aren't even consciously aware of the trying to keep up with people or feeling less than, or just even feeling too stimulated. It means mm-hmm. we're not taking the time to just be with our thoughts. And mindfulness is the opposite of, um, being online. Mindfulness just means you're saying, here's where I am right now. This is what I see. This is what I feel this is what I hear. Mm-hmm. And so you're just checking in with yourself. And so if you have a half hour subway ride, give five minutes to mindfulness kind of thing, give 25 minutes to a great audiobook. Um, Absolutely. It's, it's rejigging your life. And for me, I, I agree, it's difficult, but I just I do it out of necessity. I don't have a choice because I don't want to land back on the sofa. So I try and make the most of the time that I have. But I get that it's tricky. I love that you said that. You know, basically, you're 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 taking advantage of the space that you do have. It's kind of this is, might be a weird comparison, but um, that tiny house movement that's been happening, yeah, where people they look at their space and they say, okay, we only have 250 square feet, but have we ever thought about putting drawers into the staircase? And wow, like that's yeah. space right there that we can use for a system. And so you're just stepping back and you're thinking about it. Whereas most people, they just get onto the subway, they go to work, and they just think, well, I just got to sit here and be on the subway, and I'll just check my Facebook feed. Whereas when you're living intentionally, you can say, no, no, no I'm going to be on a subway, and I have a choice. I can sit there, and I can go through Facebook, and I can look at the pictures of everyone's life and see how much more fun they had this weekend than I did. 
<laughs> and remind myself about all the things that make me feel sad. Or I could take this time to, as you say, you know, listen to an uplifting podcast or just to listen to nice music that makes me feel good or a comedian, you name it. And to know that that's within your power. Yeah, absolutely. And even with my kids, we've started listening to, um, instead of turning the TV on together, sometimes we'll just put on Jim Gaffigan, one of his audio CDs. Um, right. we'll just listen to that instead. And that's stand up comedy and it's mostly appropriate for, for tweens. And, uh, so it's, it's looking at how I'm already, what are the things I already have to do and how can I make them more fun? How can I like, if I am missing my girlfriends and I want to be with my girlfriends more and there just aren't the hour, then I say, who's going to walk my dog with me? Who's going to mm -hmm. <laughs> come yeah. over for dinner on a weeknight? Because I still have to get done what I have to get done, but let's think outside the box. And, um, one of the things I started doing recently, I needed a pick me up because I, I try and plan ahead for my mental health. Like I know there's certain months that are a little more difficult. I find, um, January, February, because you're just coming out of the holidays, but the weather's still pretty blah. Yeah. Um, so I had to plan ahead and I was like, okay, what exciting thing am I going to put in my life? And I started taking a Beyonce dance class oh, Of course, <laughs> so, you did. with, uh, with a girlfriend. And so stuff like that, where it's a small thing, but it, it helped me acknowledge that, yes, I'm doing a little thing for myself and it brings me joy. And there's no ambition behind it because I definitely can't dance, but, uh, <laughs> but you can now, yeah, <laughs> but, but you, doing it for the fun. Well, it was something that you just made me think of when you said that, that uh, this, I, this has got to be one of the things that depresses me the most when I, when I, uh, of the human race. Mm -hmm. And that is when you'll meet somebody and you're chatting with them and they say, I don't know, it turns to how much vacation time they get in the year. And those, and they talk about how, oh, well, I could, I just couldn't get around to it this year. I, I passed it. I pushed it over to the, to the following year. Right. And, and you're like, why? And they, well, you know, work is just so busy these days. And then you'll talk to somebody else and they'll say, yeah, I've been pushing it off for the last three years. I really should go somewhere. It's like you are given the opportunity to um, bring joy into your life and you're skipping it deliberately. And that's what you said, you know, like in February, you know, you, you can, there's something you could do to bring joy into your life and you're choosing not to skip it. And guess what? It brings joy into your life. It's not. It's not. It's not um, a complicated formula. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so it does just require a little more uh, strategy and uh, and figuring out what what works for me the best in this time. And for me, I'm just infusing laughter in my life as much as I can. Um, mm -hmm. The kind of books that that we read, even the conversations that we have, trying to keep it um, funny, you, just you, knowing that that's. It's just this gift that's just sitting there waiting for you. Right. I think that's important. Um, I've, I've caught myself um, recently talking to my partner about a client that's been really um, frustrating to work with. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, it just dawned on me that I had been speaking about it for about 20 minutes. And I was thinking, this conversation is not going to change that client. And while I do believe it's important to get things off of our chest, it's also equally important to recognize when you've been spending too much time speaking about something negative. And, and I think that anyone listening to this right now, I would encourage them to really kind of just be present in your life and be able to step back and look at yourself and say, okay, have you been complaining about your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, or, who, or your, your job, whatever it is? And there's nothing wrong with getting it off your chest because that, that's important from a therapeutic perspective. But also ask yourself, 
do you talk about it too, too much? Because if you do, you might be the one who's kind of triggering your own uh, feelings of depression. Absolutely. And uh, part of my recovery, I learned the words ruminating and uh, catastrophizing. (laughs) And so basically it's that there's a difference between venting, which is a healthy thing, getting, getting stuff off your chest. But then when you feel like your record player is stuck on skip, when you feel like you're just in a loop, that's called ruminating and catastrophizing where you're just playing the exact same facts over and over, Mm. playing a conversation over and over or um, a situation over and over. And you keep kind of digging yourself deeper into despair as you do it. And again, they say mindfulness is one of the best tricks with that. Because even if you say, okay, you know what, I'm just going to take like 60 seconds right now and go into my mind and just see what I hear, what I feel, what I, um, what I see in front of me right now. And that interrupts your thought pattern. Mm. And so then if you'll go back to it, you'll start to see it more as factual and you won't be down that rabbit's hole again. Um, cause I, I promise you, I was the queen of it. I could find, <laughs> I could take any subject and get like all worked up about it. And finally, my husband said to me one day, Jess, from now on, treat our relationship like a courtroom and you can present evidence once. But then you either have to present new evidence or you have to just move on with your case. <laughs> it was, I thought it was like hilarious advice, but it actually ended up working where I was like, you know what? Have I said this exact same thing before? Then there's no there's no point. It's not new evidence. Oh, my and, God. Uh, I need to take his advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, how, it made a difference in our relationship for oh, sure. And, and that's just it too, right? I mean, people whose relationships are, are, are suffering, they always assume it's the other person's fault, but sometimes yeah. we're to blame. <laughs> what, um, what, cause here's a concern I have about my own life as being a father. And that is my crazy becoming my kids crazy. Yeah. What do you, how do you feel about that? And, and do you do anything to make sure that they don't be kind of, um, I guess, uh, take on some of the anxieties that we have taken on in our own lives. Yeah. Um, I, I worried about that a lot. Um, and all I can do to make up for lost time because I can't change them seeing me, uh, depressed as much as I tried to hide it for those two years. Um, I just try and be as transparent with them as possible and explain to them as much as in, in the context that a 10 and 12 year old, can understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just open with them. I I've explained exactly what depression is. I've explained the difference between having a bad day and a bad day is when your circumstances go wrong, something tangible has gone wrong and you feel badly about it. Whereas I said, a depression is maybe everything's going right, but you still can't get rid of those bad feelings. And so that has helped them understand that a bad day isn't doesn't mean that you're depressed. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. Um, but also I try and model for them good mental health by the choices I make about team sports and exercise. Um, the way that we, we actually did a thing last year where we put all of our gadgets, our phones and iPad, um, they're in one corner of the living room on a, with like a nice chair and when people want to be on their phones, that's where they should go. And then when they're in the rest of the house, they're gadget free. And that way, a, it signals to them. If I'm at the chair, I'm working on something, Mm -hmm. but if I'm not at the chair, I'm entirely yours. 
but also uh, it stops them from letting their phones become an extension of themselves. It's they, I cannot tell you the, um, the mental health, even the world health organization has come out to say like, watch your kids mental health. If you've given them phones, it's uh, cause it's all of a sudden it's being engaged all the time and not having any stillness in your mind and not even, not even developing the parts of your personality that would normally get to react or think or have an imagination when all the work is done for you yeah. on a gadget. So uh, those are, you know, we, we try and make decisions like that to even get outdoors every day, that kind of thing. Um, that's, it's so important. The one, th- the one thing that I, I, I think that is, uh, the, the, the aspect that a lot of parents and a lot of people, okay, if you're listening to this right now and you're not a parent, don't go thinking that you're off the hook. If you're an aunt, you're an uncle, or if you have uh, friends who have kids, I mean, we're, we're all in this together because it's the next generation that's really going to create the world that we want to live in. And so, um, the amount of negative uh, components that are attributed to these devices now, um, the research is beginning to come out more and more. And it's the kind of thing that we need to see as an epidemic um, and really take a look at for the seriousness of, of it. Because it's one thing for us to say, oh, well, you know what, it's no big deal. My kid just uh, wants to talk to their friends on on Instagram, let's say, or they want it on Snapchat. And that's fine. I agree with that. I think that uh, social media is a wonderful thing, and I think that it's fun, and I think that um, there's there's some positive aspects to it. But I'm now seeing um, friends of mine telling me that when their kids are sick and, like, they've got the flu and they just have to be in bed, um, they're so afraid of being out of the conversation that they're actually mm-hmm. asking their friends to log in as them and comment on things oh, wow. as them. And and so that's when you start realizing, okay, this is there's a major attachment issue here. In fact, I'm reading a book right now called um, Taking Back Your Kids, and it's so fascinating. And it talks about how so many young people these days are um, turning to their peers. They're, what, they're, what they're called is peer oriented as opposed to parent oriented, right. and they are looking to their peers, their peers to be their um, their, their form of guidance. And, well, how can a peer be expected to guide you in anything important in life when they've only been on this planet for 12 years? They don't, mm-hmm. ha- they don't have the maturity to be able to guide you. And then that, that same peer also isn't going to give you unconditional love the way your parent will because if you don't like something they post on Facebook, that's a condition to their love. And right. that you've broken that condition, so there is no love. And this is why we're seeing more and more young people becoming depressed because – they're experiencing um, a detachment from the thing that they're oriented to, which is their peers. Um, mm-hmm. And they're experiencing that on a daily basis. So I bring it back to you. How do you, because I didn't go, I didn't, my kids are young. They're still three and a half and one and a half. How do you really kind of try to be the authoritarian and to be the parent uh, in light of the fact that your kids probably do want their devices all the time? Yeah, my, uh, my daughter's 12. And we said she can't join Instagram yet. um, Because they say that's one of the most sort of uh, the ones the kids are turning to the most for uh, validation, but also it's giving 12 year old body image issues and Mm -hmm. uh, popularity issues and stuff like that. So we just said, no, thanks. That's not um, something you're going to be into. But we explained exactly why. And we said, 
we think this is going to prepare you for life better. We think you'll have a happier adulthood. We think you'll have this, this, this because of this choice. And and she was respectful of it. But then we also say, if you want to be on your phones, terrific, but go do it in that chair, in that space we designated. And fortunately, most of the time, they'd rather be with us wherever we are in the house doing whatever we're doing. And so it just sort of takes the the fun of the phone away a little bit. Um, I really like that if, because yeah, cause it, yeah. It, it physically makes them have to detach themselves from you. And they can now, from an optics perspective, they realize you're over there, I'm here. Um, so it almost, in a sense, puts like gravity toward the phone use, which is I, 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 whatever I'm doing must has to be important enough for me to not to be separated from the people who are all laughing in the kitchen. Oh yeah. And it's, and the thing is it, it, it might look like it's something that's done, uh, like in a punitive way or something, but it's, I just can't stand it. I can't stand even the adults, the friends I have who are constantly pulling their phones out and checking their phones mid conversation. And I'm like, that's so annoying. It's so, and I, I just, couldn't stand for my kids to do it. And I knew if I get that annoyed seeing other people do it, what message is it sending to my kids if I'm constantly pulling my phone out? Um, I, I just think it's a an etiquette thing, but <laughs> a thing to avoid like major annoyance. And uh, it's so just so far so good with how we've been doing that with our kids. But um, I know there'll be bigger, bigger hurdles and there might be more pushback when they're uh, when they're teenagers and we'll cross that road when we come to it. But, um, like we're just being honest and transparent and reasonable with the kids. And we'll be like, here, look at the study, look, read this article, see what they say. Do you really disagree with us? Do you really? Um, and my daughter ended up even agreeing with us. She was at a birthday party recently and there were 12 girls and 11 of them were on their phone for the whole party. (laughs) Just my daughter wasn't on her phone, but she pulled out her phone at one point just to take a, a photo of them and it was 11 girls sitting separately from each other, all looking at their own phones. And that was the party. And that just sounds like the lamest thing I've ever heard. And uh, what some of the parents in our neighborhood have started doing is they say, when you come for the birthday party, leave your phones at the front door. If you need to get in touch with your parents, you may come to the front door, use your phone. But then the phone stays there and you should go back to the party and oh, be love, with humans. I love those parents. <laughs> uh, you know, in, in, in it really, this is where you find yourself... Um, being confronted as a parent because you then have to start making decisions where next year when she's invited to that party, you have, you might say, no, you're not allowed. Or, or do you really want to go or to remind them? Because, um, I know that a lot of my friends and, and myself included, uh, I was recently, for example, having to go to, a am not having, I was looking forward to going to a cottage weekend with some of my friends and I had to put out an uncomfortable email, uh, to the group. And I made it generic, even though there was one particular couple I was essentially addressing, <laughs> but it yeah. seemed like it wasn't just them. But I said, look, you know, um, we uh, we don't want our children to be uh, on screens. And we feel like they get too much of that stuff in the society that they're in. And we gave our reasons. So if you are going to um, put a screen on, uh, would you be able to consider maybe like put, putting your child in another room watching it right. so that because as soon as my daughter sees some oh, of the kids oh i know kid, they can't help it oh, yeah. it's candy yeah exactly <laughs> she's she's sitting right next to the person so um but yeah you do have to go into those awkward situations where you have to start saying to your fellow parents like look you know maybe you haven't done as much reading on this but like i'm just not as cool as you are with having a party at my house and 11 girls being on their cell phone the whole time Yeah, it's and and the thing is, our parents generation would have said, Oh, well, that's total common sense. But parents today, 
there's this because we're all reasonable and we're friendly and we're evolved, we all feel like, but I want, I can be my kid's friend. My kid's my friend. And we are a generation that doesn't really discipline their kids. I'm not talking about spankings and so on. I'm talking about saying no and holding that no, no matter what. And, um, my therapist helped me work through that when I was coming out of the depression, because of course, in the depression, I was so guilt-ridden that I just said yes to whatever the kids wanted. Like, mm-hmm. hey, can I just pee off the back porch instead of going <laughs> to the bathroom? Sure, do do whatever. I'm the good mom. I'm mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, my therapist, uh, as I was coming out of the depression, she said, I think you're stronger now, and I think it's time for you to start saying no to the kids. And I was like, oh, what do you mean? Like, when should I say no? And she said, when no is the reasonable answer, you should say no. Right. And I said, well, what if what if I say no like 10 times a day. And I feel like there's no yeses. And she's like, then that's the situation you're in where they're making unreasonable demands and you have to say no 10 times in a row. And I I said, won't that, like, I have so, I have so much guilt and I just want to give them the best life. Won't me saying no all the time, won't that scar them? And she said, it'll do the opposite. Kids feel safer and more loved when their parents have consistent rules and boundaries. And I know that's counterintuitive, But oh my gosh, the change in my kids, when I got consistent like that, and my husband and I did it at the same time, and I I promise you, I was dry heaving every time I said no. It was like (laughs) the word wasn't in my vocabulary. It felt unnatural. It felt mean. Right. And I was like, well, can I say no, but give them $5? And she said no, because they only want what they asked for. They don't want a substitute. But you still say no. Anyhow, I did. And uh, this was maybe four or five years ago. Um, and I will just say they're grateful children. They feel very secure. Um, they, they aren't clingy They're Um, and you know what? I can't attribute it all. I mean, it's, I, quite frankly, I think most of it is just, I have a very kind husband (laughs) and I think (laughs) my kids inherited his personality, but, um, I saw a change in them. They went from being very, uh, clingy and complaining a lot to being really like solid, self-sufficient, um, kids. And, uh, so for me, it, it worked going the no route. It's, um, it, and it's just, it's a new habit. Like it's a new muscle. (laughs) If you're like me and you just weren't used to saying no ever, it's hard to go from saying, I want to be my kid's favorite person in the world to saying, I want to be my kid's parent. And maybe that makes me the most popular person to them. And maybe it doesn't sometimes, but I'm doing what I have to today so that they're the strongest adult they can be. What a great way of putting it. And and I got to say to you, I couldn't agree with you more. I've, I love it in those really short moments where I am kind of my child's friend and, and we're playing on the bed and we're laughing and we're giggling. But I know that if within that laughing and giggling, she starts trying to maybe um, push the boundaries and starts, starts kicking me a little bit with her feet where it begins to hurt. And I know she's right. testing the boundaries. I know that I have to end what I'm enjoying, which is the friendly part. And I got to be the parent now. And I have to let her know that that is not acceptable. You can't do that. And of course my daughter will then push it and see if she can do it. And then there has to be a discipline in her case for the age that she's at. Usually at this point in her life, it's putting her unicorn in the closet. <laughs> oh, hilarious. Yeah, oh my like gosh. Your unicorn is going in the closet where she thinks monsters live. 
Oh, no. Yes, and that worries that worries that the monsters will take her unicorn. And there have been times when they have, and we've had to negotiate with the monsters to get the unicorn back. Oh, that's hilarious! Right, your, your daughter's learning negotiation. Yeah, that's it. And so, uh, but it's it's um, I hate it. I'm the same way as you. I don't I don't want to be the disciplinarian, and I hate having to do it 25 times a day. But um, if you... but the beautiful thing is, then in a month when you're cuddling and playing and laughing. She knows how to cuddle and play and laugh without hurting people. Exactly. So it's um, you're giving them life skills. And the, the thing is, if, it, if you don't teach them, then who does? They either don't learn it. And the way my therapist said it is she said um, kids without boundaries have such insecurity and then they go out into the world not knowing how to self-soothe. Mm. So anytime they get either an insult or a lack of approval or something like that in their adult life, it'll feel five times more traumatic than if you had just in the safety and love of your home kind of just put some gentle boundaries on things. I mean, in, in our approach, our way of doing it was we said like, Oh no, if you're going to hit me, then I'm actually going to leave this game. Right. I'm, I'm not going to play anymore. And so they were like, well, I want to keep playing. And I was like, Oh, terrific. Don't kick. Yeah. <laughs> and then that would be the thing. But yes, you know, you, I, I have Dr. Phil because he's any of those sort of, oh my gosh, those types of people who are, they give advice and it's very straight shooting with, in terms of parenting, but it's kind of amazing to see the turnaround, right. um, in your kid. I can't believe I'm quoting Dr. Phil for parenting, but you know what? Though, actually, I, I have to interrupt you there because for you, you literally just cut out for like the second you gave us a Dr. Phil quote. So, what did oh, you say? Uh, sorry. Um, so, Dr. Phil uh, would would always be saying, you know, it's short term pain for long term gain. If you threaten your kid, you know what? We're leaving the restaurant if you do that again. Unfortunately, you have to leave the restaurant. Yeah. Like you have to put the lessons you're teaching your kids first over your comfort, over your schedule, um, over your relaxation. But when you do that work, the change comes so quickly and the payoff is huge. And we haven't had to discipline our kids in years. Like it's been years since they've had a timeout for anything because they know when we say no once, whoops, that means a no. Like That's, I'm not going to cross that line because I don't real. want my allowance taken or I don't want to have a timeout or whatever. Um, and because we've crossed that bridge with them, we have so much fun. Like sometimes we're all laughing on the ground together because we're just having such a goofy, ridiculous time. Oh, that's so and, nice. And uh, so I'm, I feel really grateful for it, uh, having learned that lesson and and for second chances in parenting. Yes, yes. Well, you know, you you. Uh, it's funny to hear you say what you just said because I know that my partner and I were very careful. Uh, when we are in a restaurant as to what we will say because we know we have to follow through. It's like, you know, if you do that one more time, we're getting right in that car and we're driving right home. And I'm convinced that my daughter won't do it. And she does it. And I'm like, damn it. And you're like, oh, I just ordered the uh, surf and turf. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah. so, I was so, like, I'm guessing we're going to get that packed up now. We're going to get into the car and we're going to go home. So she, but she knows, she knows now that when we're in yeah. a restaurant, I just, before we walk in now, I had to say, just so you know, if uh, you want to run around and treat this restaurant like a playground, you can, but we will just leave. And so yeah. she, she doesn't do it. So you, you have to do that. Well, listen, before I let you go, because I know that um, I want to be respectful of your time here, but there is one last question based on what we're um, talking about here that I, I want to get your, your take on. It's a big question, but um, 
when you think about all of your life experiences and everything you've gone through, through some of the mental health challenges to uh, standing on stage in front of uh, thousands of people to being married to becoming a mom, all the stuff you've learned along the way, um, what would you be? What would you say is the one thing you know that you want your children to know um, or to do or to really take on something that you know without a doubt that if you could leave them with any skill or character trait, whatever it might be, what would that thing be? And I, and I would even say, I'd even go as far as not just your children, but what would you like planet Earth to embrace based on what you know throughout your life? Gosh, that is a big question. Um, but the, the answer that popped into my mind um, is that you do have the power to change things for mm. yourself. You do have the power to change um, your mind and your mood and your circumstances to a degree. Um, and so don't give up, don't give up. Even when it seems really hard, you're worth it. We were put on this earth to experience joy and love and be loved. So make the decisions that, that will allow you to have that. And it might seem like hard work, but, but don't give up because you, we're all worth it. And, and we're all entitled to feel good. Oh, I love that. We have we we can't go any further because anything else after this would just be <laughs> it's all garbage. <laughs> it's all garbage now. Um, thank you for sharing that, and that that's uh, that's something that I think that is important for all of us to take in. And I was thinking about this today with respect to apathy and how easy it is to um, to to become apathetic towards life. And I was feeling that with respect to global warming, and mm -hmm. I just am so frustrated with uh, what corporations are doing and with what human beings are doing. And I've always considered myself an environmentalist. And I just started feeling apathetic towards it. I'm like, oh, you know what? Maybe we should just burn the whole world down. Let's just do it. Right. Okay? No one's listening. Go, you know, I was just, I was pissed off. But, you know, I can't, it, hearing what you said just now made me realize I can't give up. I can't give up on, on having that hope that things will change because they do. And, um, and if there's anything that we can look at in the history of time is that, there's millions of examples where things looked dire and, uh, and human beings used the power that they did have to change it, uh, whether it was a personal story about one person or whether it was uh, a whole country coming together to make a change that they needed to make. So that's, uh, those, are good, those are good words to close off on, I would say. Oh, well, thank you so much. This has been awesome, and uh, I really appreciate uh, you bringing me on. Oh, Jessica, it's it's such a pleasure to have uh, people like you say yes when uh, we put the ask out. We're always thinking, she's for sure too busy for us. But uh... No, I'm, I'm not because, uh, A, you're a wonderful person, and I love your positive outlook. And B, uh, if I can't make time to toot my own horn, then what's the point? <laughs> that's, that's, you know what? And you, and you've, you, have, you could have done more. I think we'll have to bring you back in the show for a bit more horn tooting. Sweet. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. So now, listen, anyone who wants to get your new book, where's the best place to go? Uh, they can go to Indigo in Canada or Amazon on, uh, in the U.S. and uh, hopefully some bookstores too. But uh, it's called Depression the Comedy depression the comedy well i have no doubt that uh, for all you listening you're going to be very entertained and very moved by this book and i encourage you to go out there and get it and um and if anyone wants to follow you on places like social media that uh, that devil we were just talking about where mm -hmm. uh, where are you found there well here's the thing there's nothing wrong with uh, social media just treat it like a hot tub get in get out before you catch anything <laughs> um 
I'm uh, I'm on Facebook, uh, Instagram. I'm at Fancy Comedian, and then on Twitter, I'm at Happy Feet Homes. I love it. <laughs> Thanks for the laugh there. Um, all right, well, Jessica, thank you so much for being in the show. It was such a pleasure. You're such a gem, and uh, I'm so glad that we've got you in this world. Thank you so much. Same to you, Stuart. The number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is. Thank you for tuning in to The Stuart Knight Show. We hope you've enjoyed this powerful conversation. People are fascinating, and so are you. And the right questions will prove it. We'll prove it. We'll prove it.